Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to um, the book of 1 John, way tucked away in the back of the New Testament. 1 John, chapter 4. And I'm going to read you just one verse this morning. You're used to me reading whole chapters. This morning we get a break. We're going to read one verse. First John, at verse, at chapter four, at verse ten. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it endures forever. You know, folks, Christmas is a lot of, about a lot of nice things. It's, uh, it's about the worship of a God who has entered time and space. It's about um, friends and family. It's about um, caring and giving. It's about truth. It's about salvation. But I think most of all, it's about love, real love, the kind, the kind that is so incredible and so wonderful that it almost defies our ability to explain it. In fact, I, I want to say that, that Christmas and love are almost synonyms. Almost. <clears throat> You know, um, there's a mystery about both of them, about Christmas and, and love, um, that, that's hard to explain, indeed. It's, um, and, and one of the things that Christmas is about, I think, is, is uh, making strides towards an explanation, helping us understand love. You know, I remember one of the things that I could never understand about uh, Christmas is that in the raising of three daughters... Every time Christmas rolled around, they all wanted a boyfriend. Uh, you know, and I, and I don't think it had anything to do with wanting another gift, I don't think, uh, or, or even having a date for the next Christmas party. I, I think it had to do with this, you know, love is in the air, love is in the air, you know, and it was just, it was just a time that you wanted to be loved and you, you wanted to show love and feel love and share love. You, you just, it's, it's a season that's dominated uh, by love. Don't you want to be loved, especially at Christmas? I mean, don't you? I think we do. And yet, um, part of the confusion, I think, about love is that for many of us, We've been hurt by love. Actually, it wasn't love that hurt us. It was, uh, it was thinking that love existed when it didn't. Some of us have heard words like these. I don't love you anymore. Or, um, I've never loved you. 
Or here's my personal favorite. I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Whatever in the world that means. But guys, we've been in relationships before where people told us they loved us, and they didn't. And so it's left us confused about what, the, what indeed does it mean? What does it look like? What would it, what would it look like if I had it? You know, back in um, 1875, a, a, a Parisian painter by the name of Marcel de la Clure. I love to say that. Um, but um, Marcel wrote a love letter to his beloved. And that's not very unusual that a man writes a love letter to a woman, but this one was highly unusual. It only contained three words. And I, and I bet you, you know what those three words were. Indeed, the three words were, I love you. But he wrote them 1,800,000 times. <laughs> now that's very sweet. But I don't think 1.8 million printed I loves you necessarily means it's the real thing. You know, um, there's another suggestion brought to you um, by evolutionary science. And um, the evolutionary science, in true Tina Turner style, says, um, what's love got to do with anything? In fact... Um, they will tell you that, that they offer what they call the biochemistry of love. And, and they suggest that <coughs> love is something that exists in the brain. And it, and it has particular, very identifiable chemical component parts to it. Love has, a, has, has specific chemical pathways and, and it lights up a certain portion of the brain, the, the caudate nucleus of the brain, which is the home of this dense spread of receptors for a neurotransmitter called dopamine. They're serious. <laughs> um, one of the um, one of the more interesting research projects that I ever read about was a, an evolutionary scientist who was trying to explain love. And so um, this, this guy's name is Klaus Wedekind. I'm not making this up. Uh, he was at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. <clears throat> and he, um, his research project involved sweaty T-shirts. And so what he did is he asked 49 women to smell sweaty T-shirts that had been previously worn by unidentified men with a variety of genotypes. Now, your genotype influences the kind of BO that you have and your immune system. Now, you didn't know that, did you? I mean, aren't you glad you came to church this morning to, to find that out? Well, he, he then asked these women to rate which T-shirts smelled the best to these women and which ones smelled the worst. And so what he found in this research project is that women chose T-shirts that had a scent to them that was most unlike their genotype. 
And he reasoned that the reason that they did that is because, because your genotype influences your immune system, that this man perhaps would have a different genotype immune system when added to hers would make their offspring more healthy and, and robust. And so all of those, those theories about why I came to love my wife, all oh, those, they're just as much, they're just a bunch of hogwash. Actually, my, my wife fell in love with me because of my BO. And, and that was a result of her hard wiring and, and, and my hard wiring. And, and dads, the next time a man comes to you, and says he wants to marry your daughter, and you ask her, you ask him, well, son, uh, why is it that you love my daughter? He might say something like this. Well, sir, I am ultimately driven by the mating instinct, which is wired in the most primitive part of my brain. And your daughter allows me the best possible opportunity to pass on my DNA. <laughs> Now, if that somehow leaves you flat, not to mention your dear little daughter, then you, then you might want to give up evolutionary science and its definition of real love. You know, guys, <clears throat> back in the late 80s, when I would, mid to late 80s, uh, when I was doing singles ministry, which is one of the um, funnest jobs I ever had, I, I would have... Men and women alike. And I don't want to overstate it. It wasn't, but it was several times a year I would have women and men say to me, I'm afraid of love. I thought I was in love once, and, but it was one-sided. And I ended up being dehumanized and exploited. I, I gave up my independence for her, and she didn't. And, and I was, I was used. There was no, there was no reciprocity to this relationship. And then, interestingly enough, for whatever their reasons, they would, uh, invariably, they would go on to say something like this. But that doesn't mean I've given up. No, no. I, I mean, I, I, I still hope to find love one day. I, I still hope that somewhere down the road there, that I might finally have a shot at love, you know, get lucky in love. If I only, uh, if I only could figure out what it looks like. Well, I, that's what I want to do for you this morning, ladies and gentlemen. I want to tell you about. I want to tell you what about what love looks like. And I, I have three characteristics that I want to mention. Two of them you'll find almost. Insulting. The other one I think you might find a bit challenging, but just stay with me. First of all, <coughs> love is, um, as we've already really noted, it's two-sided. Two people have to have it. And when both people have it, it's a great thing. But when it's, when it's one-sided, it's, it's downright dehumanizing. You know, all those, those sad love songs that you hear, those are about one-sided love. That's one characteristic. The other characteristic is, or another, is, is that it's sacrificial. You know, save your breath, save your ink, save your paint, save your 1.8 million printed I love yous. One act of sacrificial living 
will communicate a whole lot more to me than, than your ink. <laughs> back, um, back in the fall, the staff um, read a book together. We studied this book together as a staff because we were, it, it was a book on counseling. And we were trying to be better at this, this responsibility of counseling. And, and um, the book, some of you have read, maybe many of you have read, maybe some of you have even gone to the seminar. <coughs> Actually, I'm wrong. You, you, didn't, you didn't read the book we studied. But in this book, towards the back, he, he begins to criticize a book that you may have read. A book that um, has a seminar that goes along with it. And it's got all kinds of workshops, etc. It's called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Maybe you've read that. Maybe you've been to the seminar. Well, uh, Gary Chapman says that the reason that we've got so many problems in relationships is because we have empty love tanks. We got empty love tanks, folks. And, and I went out and had an affair because I had an empty love tank. That's my problem. I've got an empty love tank. And so the book that we were studying was saying about that, that it is the whole five love language thing is, is premised on a, a give to get economy. That is, if you give people what makes them feel given to, they're more likely to give you back. So, ultimately, what this author said is, the five love languages just exchanges a naked self-interest for a civilized self-interest. I don't know whether you agree, that's not really my point, but he's got five suggestions about how people sense love. Kind words and gift giving and all that business. And, and my point is simply, I want to suggest to you that all five of them could be summarized under one heading. And that's the word sacrificial. You know, guys, I think that's what our text said. This is love. Not that you loved him. No, no, no. But that he loved and gave. Gang, <clears throat> your love is never more like God's. Than when you're sacrificing. So it's two-sided and it's sacrificial. But I don't think that comes as any surprise to you intelligent people. But this is something that might stir your thinking a little bit. A third characteristic of love is that it's restricting. Um, You want love? Great. You're going to have to give up your freedom. Um... Now, now, wait a minute, Dr. Young. <laughs> um, I was tracking real well with you on those first two, on that one, uh, two-sided and sacrifice. I, I'm, I'm right with you, but you're, but you're losing me here, uh, very honestly, because um, um, the last thing I want is, uh, is to give up some of my freedoms. Because, Dr. Young, I, I mean, you realize that in the 21st century, don't you, that freedom is the absence of restriction, the absence of constraint. Oh, I, I, I want to be in love, yes, but, but, but I don't want any restrictions. Then you can't have love. You see, in love, you, you, you restrict to create freedom. Nothing is so freeing as love. Well, at the same time, nothing is so binding. 
You, you cannot have love unless you're willing to be bound, to be limited. Love is the way to freedom. The freedom of joy and security and fulfillment. And yet you're not free when you're in love to do anything you like. You forfeit that. You forfeit that independence. You know, um, some of you think that I'm obnoxious now. Well, you should have seen me in college. If you think I'm obnoxious now, you should have seen me in college. I, I think I've told you this story before, but it, it does bear repeating, I think. It was back when Susie and I were dating. And, um, you know, being the cool breeze that I was, uh, I, I was, um, you know, I was just getting a little bit of pressure in this relationship, you know. And, and um, I was feeling a little bit hemmed in by the whole thing. And, and you know, it was very obvious to everybody <laughs> that she was far more serious about this relationship than I was. And, and, um, and so I needed to, you know, put the brakes on this thing, kind of slow it down a little bit. And so <clears throat> I decided that I needed to have a talk with her. So I was going to go on over there, and I was going to, I was going to take her for a little walk on a Sunday afternoon. I was just going to, you know, tell her where the cabbage was eaten or grown or whatever that. You know, I was going to tell her, you know, where the cat ate the canary or whatever. I, you know, I was just going to set her straight. I'd had a little talk with her, you know, little, you know, you know, just make sure she understood things. So um, I did. I drove over on a Sunday afternoon, and on a hot July Sunday afternoon, I took Susie for a walk. So I told her, you know, I understand that you, you know, <laughs> you absolutely adore me. And um, <clears throat> I understand that you, um, you know, you're just a little bit further down this line than I am. And, and um, you know, <laughs> we just need to cool this thing off because I'm a little hedged in here and I'm not ready to commit myself to anything. And, and, um, and when I finished my little spiel... She, she stopped and she looked at me and she said, <clears throat> fine. And she turned around and walked back. Which wasn't exactly the response that I had anticipated. But, <clears throat> but, but what she was saying is, you want your freedom, big boy? You can have it. <laughs> but, but you can't have me too. You see, guys, the, the freedoms of love come only when you surrender all kinds of independent little freedoms. You restrict yourself. There's no more small unilateral decisions that you can make. You know, like um, where I want to go on vacation and, and how I want to spend the weekend and, you know, what I want for supper and what time I want to go to bed. Guys, we do the same thing for health. If you want good health, you have to restrict yourself. I mean, you, know, you, know, you just can't eat everything you want to eat. And the older you get, the, um, the more you have to restrict yourself. Can I get an amen? You know, the, <laughs> the, I mean, it's, it's, it's shrinking fast. But, but you also restrict your beach time. And that melanoma is bad stuff. You, you, re, you restrict your leisure time because you've got to get exercise in there somewhere. But if you want the, the, the freedom of good health, you gotta, you gotta restrict yourself. You see, love is not only two-sided and sacrificial. It's restricting. Love is this mysterious 
many-splendored, complex thing. There it is. And its complexity, I think, is why some people are afraid of it. And if you're still awake, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that we've arrived at my real point. Because I want to suggest to you, suggest to you that the, the complexity of love is why some people are afraid of God. Um, because they're afraid of Him for the same reason they're afraid of other relationships that they've been in and thought that they were loved. They're afraid of being used. They were in love once. And they were used. They were, they were dehumanized and, 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 and exploited. And as far back as Genesis 3, ladies and gentlemen, Satan has been telling people, starting with Adam and Eve, he's been telling them, if you give yourself to God... If you give yourself wholly and completely and fully to God and do whatever He wants you to do, He's going to abuse you just like your other lovers. He's going to take your freedom and you're going to feel used. And ladies and gentlemen, for so many, that's the only religion they've ever heard about. That's the only God they've ever heard about. You know, the kind... That is one-sided. The kind that says, you do as I say, and I'll bless you. Because, gang, religion is one-sided. Religion offers a one-sided love. And it means that you do all the giving. And people hear about that, and they say, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to. I've been in relationships before where I've been used, and, 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 and I didn't like it. I've had people do that to me. I've had people say, you meet my standards, and I'll stay in this relationship. <coughs> you perform up to my expectations, and, 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 and I'll, uh, I'll love you. And I don't need any more of that. No, you don't. What you need is real love. And that's what the gospel offers us, ladies and gentlemen. The gospel offers a love that, first of all, is, oh my goodness, it's ever more two-sided. In fact, God makes the first move. He makes himself vulnerable long before you do. He pledges himself long before you do. He makes a a move towards you long before you make a move towards him. He closes all the doors for escape and he he, he closes doors on himself. So that you might know he's he's there to stay in this relationship. He's not looking for a way to, to get out. Oh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, if there's any concern about the one-sidedness of love, it's not his side. It's yours. Yours is the one that is the question mark, not his. And sacrificial? Did you read the text? Did you see what it said? 
Not, not that you loved him, but that he loved you and gave his son as a propitiation for your sins. Did you? I mean, we sing a song around here about what more for you can he do than he has already done? What, what, what other sacrifices do you want? And, and not only is it two-sided and not only is it sacrificial, but ladies and gentlemen, God's love is restricting. Does that sound odd to you that, that, the, that the love of God is somehow that God restricts himself? Then you need to go read Philippians 2. Because guys, in Christ, God loves or loves his people such that he loses his independence for you. The ultimate independence is exchanged for the confinements of a womb. He, he becomes your servant, giving up his freedoms. The one with ultimate freedom sets it aside for his beloved. He voluntarily surrenders his freedom so that he can create a love relationship with his bride. He humbles himself. He yields. He submits to the cruel treatment so that the bride can know she's loved. Now, does that confuse you? I mean, um, because I think if, if it does, it's because you've listened to the wrong message. Because, gang, religion is a one-sided love, but the gospel of grace is not. What Christianity offers is not a you-do-all-the-giving In fact, what you find in this gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is a gospel where God restricts himself so that you might know freedom. If that confuses you, perhaps it's because you've never been in love with this God before. Or perhaps you've never heard about the love that this God has. Guys, I have a a preacher friend who... um, who tells a story about a couple that he once knew. Um, she was 15 and he was 17 when they first started dating. They dated all through high school. and So nobody was particularly surprised that at the end of when she graduated, they got married. They married and about four years and two kids later, she um, was standing in the kitchen one morning and tears were flowing down, falling down, rolling down her face and it was a sink full of dirty dishes and, and dirty laundry stacked in the corner. And, and even after this was all over, she, she could never explain exactly why she did what she did. But she took off her apron and she left. She walked out. The husband gets home and finds that his wife is gone. There's no, there's no note left. There's nothing. And that night, the, um, the phone rang and it was the little wife. And the husband, understandably, was furious. What are you doing? Where are you? <clears throat> and she ignored his question and said, um, how are the kids? And he said, um, well, if you mean, are they fed? Yeah, I fed them. And I, I gave them a bath and they're in bed right now. But they're, they're just like me. They want to know, what in the world do you think you're doing? She hung up on But that wasn't the last time she called. She called 
about once a week for three or four months. And um, the more phone calls he got, the more he realized that something seriously was wrong with this woman. So he began to tell her how much he loved her and how much they wanted her to come home. And um, he told her that the kids stayed with the grandparents in the morning and and he picked them up after work and brought them home and they were fine, but that they loved her and wanted her to come home. And then he would try to find out where she was. And every time the phone conversation turned into a a question about where she was, she would hang up on him. So finally, this young husband couldn't stand it anymore, and so he went out and hired a private detective, took their savings, hired a private detective to find out where his wife was. And very frankly, it wasn't that difficult. She was across country in a third-rate hotel in Des Moines, Iowa. So he borrowed some money from his in-laws. He um, bought a plane ticket, and he flew to Des Moines, Iowa. He took a cab from the airport over to this, this hotel and he climbed three flights of stairs. This kind of hotel doesn't have an elevator. He got to her door and, and if you, if you'd have been there, you would have seen the fear in his eyes. You would have seen the perspiration on his forehead and how his hand was shaking as he knocked on the door. She came to the door and he forgot his prepared speech. And he said, darling, we all love you so much. Won't you come home? She fell apart in his arms, and that night the two of them um, flew home, flew back home together. So one night, several weeks later, they were alone. The kids were already in bed, and they were sitting in front of the fire in the living room, and and he finally got enough courage to, to ask her the question that he had been wanting to answer, ask her for so long. And he said, darling, why wouldn't you come home? Why, after all those times that I told you I loved you, why, when you knew how much we missed you, why didn't you come home? And she said, well, before... That was just words. And then you came. You know, ladies and gentlemen, it's one thing, it's a nice thing to think about that God loved the world. But on that first Christmas, ladies and gentlemen, He didn't tell you He loved you in words, in platitudes or cliches or 1.8 million printed I love you's. He came. And 1.8 million I love you's does not equal one he came. He came to demonstrate a love that is two-sided, sacrificial, and restricting. You want love? There it is. No. You want love? There he is.
Uh, Father, I do pray that you might remind us that what we're celebrating is not a new iPod. What we're celebrating is that we have been loved everlastingly. We've been loved by a God who gave up his freedom and set aside his independence and was willing to, be, to confine himself so that we might know love, real love. And I pray, O oh God, that those who have come here this morning and have never heard about this kind of love, they've only heard about the one-sided kind, the kind that makes nothing but demands and holds out blessing if we meet the demands. I pray, O oh God, that for once they might see something in all of its beauty, in all of its purity, in all of its profundity, whether we understand it fully and wholly or not, might we find something life-changing in the fact that these are not just words. He came. And so many of us will never quite be the same because he did. Now, Father, send us out of this place with a, a renewed vigor and interest in holy things and a determination to uh, display something about the unfathomable love of God for sinners. We pray, of course. In Jesus' name.